Chapter 20, Thanksgiving and Christmas. The morning before Thanksgiving, Father put three sacks of peas on the back of the buckboard, and he and Mother started for Denver before Muriel and I went to school. We had to walk because they drove Fanny, but Grace stayed home to take care of Philip and Hal. It was after dark when Father and Mother came home, but I heard Fanny's feet when she came over the bridge at the gulch. She was just walking, and King and I ran down the wagon road to meet them. I thought it would be fun to jump out and frighten them, so I flopped down behind a big tumbleweed and held King close up against me. Before they were opposite us, I could hear Mother talking. Let's not allow the small price we got for the peas to spoil our Thanksgiving, Charlie. With five healthy children, we have more to be thankful for than most anyone I know and we have enough to feed them till spring, even if there won't be much variety. Hearing her talk like that when she didn't know I was there made me feel like I was being sneaky, so I jumped up and yelled, Hi, Father! We did have a good Thanksgiving, too. Father and Mother must have sat up till nearly midnight to get things ready, They didn't let us look into the box of groceries when they got home and made us go to bed early. But when we got up in the morning, our biggest turkey was all dressed and hanging up near the kitchen door to chill. At breakfast, Mother said, Grace and I have a lot of work to do this forenoon. I want the rest of you to get bundled up and stay right out from underfoot till dinner is ready. That was the first time Father let me drive Billy. The section hands had been putting some new ties in the railroad track and had left the old ones so we could have them for firewood. Father wouldn't let me hitch Billy to the wagon, but said I could lead him out of the barn. Then, after I had hooked Nig's traces, he passed me the reins. Billy still tried to run away sometimes, and I had to be real careful that my hands didn't shake a bit so he would know I was a little mite afraid. I didn't try to sit on the seat, but stood down on the wagon bed where I could brace my feet in good shape. I guess Billy knew all right that somebody beside Father had hold of the lines because he started off dancing and hopping, but I pulled hard on the reins so as not to give my hands any chance to shiver. And by the time we got out where the ties were, he was behaving pretty well. Every time Father heaved a tie onto the wagon, Billy would jump. But he didn't try to run away, and he pulled just as well as Nig when we were going back to the house. I was nearly starved before Mother came to the door and and called, "'Dinner!' And you never saw such a dinner in your whole life. There were sweet potatoes and white potatoes and boiled onions and squash and turnips and cranberry jelly, besides the turkey. When that was done, there was mince pie and pumpkin pie, and afterwards, a pound of cracked nuts and a plate of fudge. We all ate so much, we could hardly get up from the table. Then father and all of us lay on the floor by the stove while mother read us snowbound. I think it was about the best day any of us 
had ever had. The only thing that happened before Christmas is one I don't even like to remember about. Since we moved to the ranch, Father had spent all his spare time setting fence posts. Soon after Thanksgiving, he set the last ones so that he had a row clear around the whole place. The Saturday before Christmas, we started stringing the secondhand barbed wire we had bought from Mr. Cash. Father had bought a wire stretcher that worked kind of like a pump. The more you pump the handle, the tighter the wire got. Philip came out to watch us, but Father wouldn't let me do anything except bring him staples. And he told me to keep Philip way back away from the wire till he had it stapled tight because it might break and hurt us. Father had just finished stretching the top strand of wire when I noticed a big bald eagle. He seemed to be about a mile high and was almost standing still up there. I forgot all about Philip and the fence and everything else and was thinking of all the things I could see if I were sitting up there on the eagle's back. All at once, there was a quick, high zing, and I looked around just in time to see Philip yanked off his feet and thrown end over end. Father and I went running to him as fast as we could go, and I could see blood on his neck and the side of his face. Father's hands were shaking nearly as hard as mine when he picked Philip up, when he picked Philip up, but the wire hadn't really hurt him very much. The barbs had ripped the collar off his coat and had torn a little piece out of the bottom of his ear. It was bleeding all down over his neck. As soon as Father found that Philip wasn't hurt badly, he said to me, Take him to Mother. Your punishment will be that you can't ride or drive any horse for a month, and you can't help me with the fence anymore. He didn't say anything about donkeys, but I didn't play with Willie Aldevote's old spotted one for the whole month. Every time I thought about it, I could hear the zing of that wire and see the red blood the way it looked on Philip's neck. Father and mother went to Denver again a couple of days before Christmas. That, that time they hitched Nig and Fanny to the big wagon and took a whole load of peas they didn't come home till way after dark. Grace and I could hardly wait for them to get back. She had been telling me that father and mother had to help Santa Claus with the Christmas presents and that they would be bringing them when they came home. We both ran down the wagon road to meet them as soon as we heard the wagon come over the bridge at the gulch. Father stopped the team and let us climb up into the wagon but there wasn't a thing in it. While father was unharnessing, I poked Grace with my elbow and told her she had been making up all that stuff about father and mother having to help Santa Claus. But she just looked at me smart and said, if they didn't, if they didn't there wouldn't be any presents. When father hitched Fanny up the next morning and said he was going to the mountains to see a fellow about a dog, Grace poked me right back and said, I'd found out 
I'd find out if she wasn't right as soon as he came home. I didn't, though. There wasn't a thing in the buckboard, except his little shingle hatchet, and Grace told me we were too poor for Santa Claus to come that year because the beans got frozen. Whether father and mother helped him or not, we had a fine Christmas, and I never saw anything that looked as though he were getting any help, except the packages that came from our folks back in New England. Christmas Eve, mother told us we couldn't get up till daylight, but when the sun first peeked over Loretta Heights, we were all dressed and waiting inside the bunkhouse door. Father and mother were still in bed when we went tearing into the house. There was a big Christmas tree in the corner of their room, all decorated with strings of popcorn and whole cranberries, and there was a big stack of presents under it. But father said he never even heard the sleigh bells when Santa Claus came. We all got new shoes and caps with earlaps and stockings and heavy winter underwear, and I got a jackknife with two blades and a new geography book. We didn't have any turkey, but mother baked a whole ham, and we had all the trimmings to go with it, and a big plate of fudge. There wasn't any school between Christmas and New Year's. That's when Fred Altland started bailing his hay. Father and I worked for him all week. Fred said hay had gone to such a low price that he could only afford to pay half as much as he paid us in haying time. But he'd give us 10 tons of baler chaff for our week's work. It was good cow feed, and Father said that we could boil it with frozen beans to make the best hog feed in the world. The baler chaff was all alfalfa leaves and little short stems, so the only way we could haul it was in a wagon box, and Fred said it would take five loads to make a ton. As soon as my mouth as soon as my month of punishment was over and I could drive horses again, father let me start hauling the chaff. At first, he went with me to be sure I could handle Billy all right. But after that, it was my job to go alone and get one load every night after school. I didn't have a bit of trouble with Billy, but I guess Fanny kind of forgot me during that month. The first day I went to pull her bridle on, she kept jerking her head up so I couldn't get the bit in her mouth. I was standing up in her feed box, and the more she kept bobbing her head, the madder I got. At last, I grabbed her by one ear to pull her head down. Quick as a wink, she snapped at me with her teeth. She had snapped at me a thousand times before, but had never touched me. So I didn't dodge that time. There was a rip and a burn over my wishbone, and when I looked down, blood was coming out of the hole in my jumper. It scared me a lot more than it hurt, and I went running into Mother, hollering like a dog with a stepped-on tail. I guess she was as scared as I. Father was working on some little ditch boxes out in the bunkhouse, and came in to see what had happened. While Mother took off my clothes, he made me tell him what I did to Fanny to make her bite me. Then he just looked at the skinned place before he went back to his work and said, Well, I don't see any reason for me to punish you. I think she handled the matter very well herself. Ever since Christmas, Father had been working on the ditch boxes and a little system of canals. 
It ran from the well to the far end of the bunkhouse. The Saturday afternoon before Easter, all the ranchers on our side of the creek, clear up to the mountains, came to our place for a meeting. Father explained how the boxes worked, so that each one took the right percentage of any water that was coming through the canal. He said that if everybody used them, the ranchers near the head of the ditch would get 60% of the water, and the rest of us would get 40%. Then somebody pumped water into one end of the system, and everybody else watched it work and said, Well, I'll be damned. After they played with it till the yard was four inches deep in mud, Father went into the house and brought out a paper he and Mother had been working over every evening for a week. Then he passed it to Mr. Wright, who read it aloud. All the signers agreed to use Father's boxes and not to tamper with them or take any more water than the boxes measured out to them. Fred and Mr. Wright were the last two to go. They both shook hands with Father and told him that if he hadn't figured out the new system, somebody would have been killed in the water fights. Father told them that he hoped they didn't think his new boxes would be a cure-all. He said that if one man really wanted to be dishonest, another man couldn't keep him from it. But the boxes would make it harder for him to be dishonest without being caught. Mother and I were proud of him, too. She hugged him around the neck as soon as Fred Altland was gone and told him he was the smartest man in the world. I was waiting to tell him the same thing, but he said for me to run along and get the cows. Our sow, the pig we saved when we were butchering, had her litter on Easter Sunday. There were eight good ones and one runt. Father said the runt would never get his share of milk and would always be sick, so we had a funeral for him in the afternoon. Grace let me be the minister so she could be the head mourner. From then till plowing time, Father was busy every day making ditch boxes. He made them for every rancher between our place and the mountains. But he didn't get any money for them. The men would bring him the boards and spikes and bolts, but none of them had any money, so Father had to trade them his time for little pigs or chickens or other things we could use. We got a heifer calf from one man and a weanling colt from another. By plowing time, we had 19 little pigs, eight turkeys, and a whole bunch of hens. It was about that time that I first heard anybody talking about the gold panic. But from then on, everybody talked about it. I didn't know what it was, but anyway, you could hardly get money for it. You could... You could hardly get money for anything. Fred Altland couldn't sell his alfalfa. Mrs. Corcoran couldn't sell all her cream. And when Father took peas and beans to Denver, he'd come home with more than half of them unsold. After Father got finished with the ditch boxes, Fred and Bessie Altland came to see all the new things Father got for his work. While Mother was telling Bessie where we got this chicken and that turkey, Father and Fred were talking about crops and the panic. Fred said, 
We've all got to face the fact that it's going to be hard to sell anything for a month this for money this year. I think you're better off to have got a little stock around you than you would have been to get cash for your boxes. If I was in your place, I'd raise stuff I could feed my stock and something I could trade in at the store for groceries. That's the line I've been thinking along, Father said. But I don't want to get out more crops than I can get water to raise. Having the stock is fine, but it's left me less than $20 to buy seed with. Fred always chewed tobacco, and when he was thinking hard, he had to spit a couple of times before he said anything. I bet myself he'd spit between the off horse's heels first, but he fooled me. It was between the nigh horses. Then he said, I'll tell you what, Charlie, ten of that twenty'll get you seed enough for five acres of sugar beets. You've got beans enough left to sow five acres, and you can flail out oats enough to seed twenty acres from what's left of your last year's crop. I've got a little stack of seed alfalfa that's two years old. I'll trade it to you for four days' work in haying time. With that machine you made, you could clean enough seed to put alfalfa in with your oats, and then you'd have a hay crop all laid down for several years. Father said, Fred, you're the best neighbor a man ever had, but I'm afraid you're an optimist. If I should get my full share of water, I'd only have enough for 10 acres. I've already got 10 acres of alfalfa. You're talking about my putting down another 30. I couldn't expect to do much more than lose my seed. Fred chuckled a little. Then he said, Man alive, you're the only one in the country that will be helped by this damned panic. You don't need money as much as you need food for these kids. I'll make you a bet you'll get all the damned water you need for 80 acres this year. Nobody up the ditch can hire hands this year any more than I can. The big fellows near the head of the ditch can't use all their share of water without help. They'll have to let part of it come on by, except when the ditch is lowest. If you get your ground soaked deep during the spring and keep a dust mulch over it, you'll have moisture enough to make a crop. By another year, your alfalfa roots will be deep enough so they won't need so much summer irrigation. That's the way we did it. We put Mother's Garden and the beets and beans way up at the southwest corner of the ranch, where the irrig irrigation ditch came in, and put alfalfa in with oats on the northwest field. Father got the bean field all plowed, harrowed, and marked off in squares before school let out for the summer. Afterwards, we dropped all the seed by hand so we would be able to cultivate in all directions and keep a good dust mulch and I would drop five beans where the lines crossed. Then father would hose some dirt over them and tread on it. <laughs>